AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. It's time once more to venture into the realm of Star Wars knockoffs, uh, films that regardless of their creative integrity, were clearly getting funded, made, and or released in an attempt to cash in on the juggernaut that was 1977 Star Wars. I think this will be our third blatant Star Wars ripoff <laughs> movie. Yeah, yeah. Last year we watched 1979's The Humanoid. And uh, you also brought up that, yeah, the message from space was also technically in this, uh, this wheelhouse as well. I would say that I'm going to rank today's film second uh, among our Star Wars knockoffs. I think Message from Space is probably my favorite. I'd go with Battle Beyond the Stars and then The Humanoid, though I enjoyed all three. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I might have to give Battle Beyond the Stars uh, uh, the top honors of these three, but uh, <laughs> but 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 all three, all three of them, I would say, had things going for them that, that, like I say, stand apart from the whole Star Wars craze. So it's not it's not like they were just entirely you know Star Wars ripoffs. Uh, there were creative folks involved, but certainly 
when you start looking at like the funding and the production, like these things came to these, these films came to the surface because somebody was chasing that Star Wars money. Oh, and in this case, you don't even have to wonder because this movie mm-hmm. was produced by Roger Corman <laughs> and you can watch interviews with the people who worked on the special effects and, and other behind the scenes jobs on this movie who said, yeah, Corman went to us and said, I want to make a Star Wars movie. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but one other big difference I would say is that while the humanoid certainly had definitely had its Vader knockoff, definitely had its, you know, we have Darth Vader at home moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> this film does not. And I think that alone makes it feel a little more authentic, but, uh, but we'll get into all that. That's actually a major distinction of this as a star uh, among Star Wars knockoffs. And yeah, we, we'll have to get into more detail on that later. But the movie today is 1980's Battle Beyond the Stars. And, uh, you know, we had a listener write in and said, hey, you guys should tell us where to get the movie early in the episode uh, in, in case we want to watch it before you get into all the details. So uh-huh. I, I don't know. I guess we can try that. So, hey, uh, we watched this movie on an excellent Shout Factory Blu-ray that came out. Um, this is one that comes in a limited edition steelbook for, you know, some reason. Uh, we rented it from Videodrome here in Atlanta. <laughs> for protection. Protection, yes, to protect it from the elements or from bandits and yeah. um, spacefaring warlords. Uh, but anyway, beautiful picture quality, some fun extras. You can also rent or buy this movie from most of your digital sources. Yes, and Battle Beyond the Stars is a good one to to watch in high definition, even if not every frame of the movie is necessarily worth it. The movie as a whole is, because it's really a mixed bag on art design, mm-hmm. on art design costumes and sets. Uh, some stuff in this movie is kind of phoned in, kind of Z-grade cheese. I would single out maybe some of the spaceship interiors, but not others and so forth. And then on the other hand, there are some sets and costumes and things that are eye-poppingly weird or just absolutely gorgeous. It varies wildly from scene to scene. Yeah. And I think that has, I've seen people comment on the film where they're like, yeah, each ship has, it It feels like it's truly from another planet, from another culture entirely. But yes, mm-hmm. sometimes it feels like maybe the um, the people who designed the uh, the ship interiors were also from other planets, from different effects studios on other planets. Yeah. Now, we mentioned the, the Star Wars connection. I, I also should point out that I think there are some of those ship interiors that also draw some inspiration from 1979's Alien as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cer- certainly not from this film doesn't have much to do with aliens from a plotting or character point of view. But as, of, as, a, as far as some uh, like lived in space environments go and maybe one of the planetary surfaces that we see, it made me think of Alien and it's kind of noteworthy, right? Because this film involves the talents of a particular Alien fan and future Alien franchise director, James Cameron. Yes, and I think you can really see the James Cameron influence in things like uh, uh, the the beautiful set of the planet where Shad finds Robert Vaughn. We'll get into mm-hmm. the plot details about that later. Um, but also uh, the design of the main character's ship, Nell, which looks very weird on the outside and very alien-esque on the inside, despite the fact that this is a uh, back-talking uh, 2D grandma kind of ship. Yeah. We have a character in this film called Cowboy. He is, yes, a space cowboy. He's the only character from Earth. And as goofy as this character is, and we'll get into him, the interior of his spaceship, I thought, felt very alien-esque. It it, it felt lived in in a way that reminded me of of the Nostromo. 
Yeah, it's got crushed beer cans and magazine cutouts pinned on the walls and stuff like that. And it's dirty. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have to share just a little bit from uh, Michael Weldon's write-up on this film from the 1983 book, The Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film. I just found this amusing. Uh, so, if, if you've listened to Weird Al Cinema, you know I love Weldon. I'm always interested in his take on movies, exploring and finding new movies through his writings. Uh, but I, I think I'm going to have to agree to disagree with him on this one, uh, because in his review of Battle Beyond the Stars, he writes, some of the gags were cut out and the editing could have been better, but it's a lot more memorable and more fun than The Empire Strikes Back. Hmm. And the funny I don't know, thing I don't is, know about that. <laughs> the funny thing is, at least in the reviews uh, in this book uh, and, and the follow-up book, it's not like he says anything bad about Star Wars or Empire or, uh, or even... Um, uh, Return of the Jedi, ultimately, but um, he, uh, yeah, he was just like, well, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars is just more fun. So I guess fair enough. I can't tell you what to have fun with, but yeah, uh, I, I don't think I would agree there. I'm sorry, but Battle Beyond the Stars is great fun. It is, it is absolutely. So let's get into the elevator pitch here. Uh, it's the Seven Samurai as a space opera. Uh, yep. which is a pretty smart move. It's a great structure to thrust onto a different setting or genre. The locals are facing a bandit threat, so what do they do? They hire up some lawyers to defend them. Yes, and I just want to note an interesting double input of Kurosawa on this movie. So, Battle Beyond the Stars was clearly, and if you listen to the interviews with the filmmakers, from Corman's perspective, it was explicitly supposed to be a combination of two influences – the Magnificent Seven from 1960 and Star Wars. Both of these movies could be considered Western adaptations of different movies by Akira Kurosawa. So the connection with The Magnificent Seven is overt. Uh, it's just a remake of Seven Samurai with cowboy gunslingers instead of mercenary swordsmen. Uh, and I haven't seen Magnificent Seven in probably 10 years or so, though I, I recall it being pretty fun. Of course, it's hard to compete with the source material, right? This is a case of a an okay remake of an original masterpiece. Uh, it's certainly a famous film, but I've actually never seen The Magnificent Seven. Uh, I've mm -hmm. seen The Seven Samurai, but not Magnificent Seven. Great cast, though. Oh, yeah, including Robert Vaughn, who's in mm -hmm. this movie. So he was in Battle Beyond the Stars and the movie that it's based on. Um, so yeah, so, th so that's a, that's a two-step there. Seven Samurai adapted into a Western as Magnificent Seven, and then adapted into a space opera by Battle Beyond the Stars. Now, the other half of this, of course, is Star Wars. And Star Wars itself has elements that are loosely based on a 1958 Kurosawa film called The Hidden Fortress. Uh, Rob, have you seen this one? I never have, but I've, I've, I've often been tempted to, 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 to check it out because of this connection. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it's about two peasants and a princess and a general, played by oh. Toshiro Mifune, who are trying to survive in the middle of a war between two provinces. And if you watch Star Wars and Hidden Fortress together, a lot of similarities really pop out. And the most obvious, I think, are the parallels between the two peasants in the Hidden Fortress, who are sort of traditional rustic clowns, like the the gaggle that runs along with Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. You mm -hmm. know, uh, uh, they're they're rustic comedic relief, and uh, that's in the Hidden Fortress. And then you've got the droids, R two D two and C three PO in Star Wars. They're a very similar duo in both movies. 
the action begins with these sort of lowly, bumbling, down-on-their-luck characters who are mostly there for comic relief, trying to escape the crossfire of two armies, and then they become wrapped up in a in a lofty plot involving an older general trying to save a princess in, in both cases. Interesting. So, I, I thought it was notable that Battle Beyond the Stars is not just a Star Wars ripoff. It is a mashup of two popular Western movies that are both downstream from Kurosawa. Uh, so, exactly how does the mashup come together? Well, I would phrase it like this. I would say the plot, broadly, is Magnificent Seven slash Seven Samurai, and the details and the texture are from Star Wars. That sounds fair. So I think you could, in a way, look at this movie as like the original Magnificent Seven, which was Seven Samurai but as a Western, and Battle Beyond the Stars is Seven Samurai but as a Star Wars knockoff. Now, there's another thing I'm always on the lookout for when I watch Star Wars knockoffs. I think uh, we may have talked about this in our episode on on The Humanoid. Um, but I'm always curious which elements from Star Wars get lifted and which do not, right? Because, you, you know, you're not just making an exact copy of the movie. You pick some things about it to copy and you leave, you leave out others. And for some reason, it's interesting to me, like, what are the features that people find salient or worth copying about Star Wars? Yeah, and also what what line uh, designates going too far? Like it seems, yeah. it seems as if most filmmakers would agree that you cannot have a lightsaber in your film if you're not a Star Wars property. There are some glaring exceptions. Star and Crash when, does. <laughs> yeah, and when you when you break that that rule, when you cross that line, uh, I, I think everybody kind of um, uh, you know has to sort of look away. Uh, there's a there's a, a deep shame falls <laughs> upon yeah. uh, everyone viewing yeah, yeah. and participating in the film. Totally agree. Um, so a couple of things along these lines I wanted to mention right at the top, but maybe we can mention some more um, uh, details that were copied or not as we go along. But first thing I wanted to draw attention to is Darth Vader design. Mm -hmm. I believe one of the most universal features to be carried over into a Star Wars copycat is the Darth Vader design. Almost all of these movies have a menacing Space Lord villain who wears a shiny black suit with some kind of robotic entanglements and a samurai-inspired helmet. And this movie is an exception. It clearly has a Darth Vader-inspired character whose name even rhymes with Vader, but this character does not wear a Darth Vader-type suit. And I think there's a reason for this, Rob. We, we can get to it when we talk about the actor, but I wonder if you'll agree with me about the reasoning. Okay, all right. Second thing that is very often copied from a Star Wars movie and is clearly uh, and is present in this one a planet killer weapon. This movie does not have a Death Star, but it does have a spaceship that can shoot a beam that can destroy an entire planet. All right, well, let's go ahead and listen to the trailer. Ruthless invaders, a defenseless planet. Battle Beyond the Stars. A lone youth escapes on a last-ditch mission that begins at the edge of the universe. The story of a boy who finds more than he expected. <laughs> Make them burn. And all he can handle. 
Does your species have kissing? Oh, yes. We have that. Try one. That's a hot dog. It comes from Earth. Do you like it? There's no dog in this. Mm -mm. Soybean meal, niacin, dextrose, and sodium nitrate flavoring. That's what we call meat back home. Battle Beyond the Stars. All right, sounds like a, a lot of fun, right? Sure. All right, let's let's uh, let's talk about the people who brought this together. Uh, first of all, um, the director, Jimmy T. Murakami, who lived 1933 through 2014, American-Irish animator of Japanese-American heritage. Uh, he was also a director on 1981's Heavy Metal, helming the soft landing sequence alongside John Bruno. And this segment was based on a comic pinned by Dan O'Bannon of Alien fame and was adapted for the film uh, by Dan O'Bannon. Uh, Murakami's other directorial credits include um, uncredited direct directorial work on 1980s Humanoids from the Deep, another Corman production, and various animated credits, including directing the Tootsie Pop How Many Licks short commercial from 1969. Oh, is this the one with the owl? Yeah, this is the one with the owl. Wow. Uh, our our producer Seth will also uh, uh, he he probably already knows this, uh, but uh, Murakami also produced six episodes of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. Uh, he also directed When the Wind Blows from 1986 about an elderly British couple who survive a nuclear war. And he was the co-founder of Murakami Wolf Productions, later known uh, as just Fred Wolf Films, who did that original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles show. Well, folks, Seth just filled us in with all kinds of animation connections. Uh, uh, I don't think he was recording what he said, so unfortunately. But, uh, it, uh, suffice to say, apparently Fred Wolf is important in a whole 70s animation scene. Now, Joe, you you dived into the uh, the making of stuff on this one a little more than I did. Uh, I noticed that on Internet Movie Database, Roger Corman is listed as not only a producer, but an uncredited, he has an uncredited director's credit. Uh, uh -huh. I am to believe he would, he would at least show up and fire people and so forth. Uh, I think that's a common uh, dynamic with Corman, that he, is he directing this movie? Not really, but sort of. Mm. I think this wouldn't even be the first Corman-produced movie that was like this. Oh, I think it was the case with, um, what was it? The uh, the Brain Eaters that was sort of half-directed by Corman or at least produced yes. by Corman without a credit. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think that kind of thing happened a lot. There are a lot of great stories about uh, Corman. So, I, I watched part of a making of documentary that comes on the Blu-ray. If, if you pick this, uh, pick up the new Blu-ray of this one, uh, which mostly featured interviews with the visual effects crew. And so they had a lot of great stories about, uh, uh about working with James Cameron and what that was like on set. But uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was, well, first of all, a lot of talk about Corman ended up having to do with the budget, of course. Like, how can mm. we get costs down? <laughs> yeah. uh, because they pitched this as, you know, this was going to be like the biggest budget Corman movie of all time. It was going to be like, Corman's finally making a movie with like a mainstream level budget. But I think in actual fact, the budget just kept shrinking during production until this really was kind of done on a shoestring compared to how it looks in the end. Mm. But uh, one of the stories, for example is that uh, I think major parts of this were shot 
on a studio that Corman had uh, purchased that was formerly a lumber yard. And they said that Corman didn't change the signs on the, on the studio lot. It still said lumber yard because he reasoned that the, uh, the sets were less likely to get burglarized if it was labeled the lumber yard instead of a movie studio. And then they ended up hiring people for the production because carpenters would show up looking to buy lumber, <laughs> not realizing it wasn't a lumber yard anymore. And they'd be like, Hey, you want to work on a movie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the uh, the, the writing credits on this. So uh, there is a, there's a writer by the name of Ann Dyer who has a story credit, the one of only two writing credits alongside 1979's Up From the Depths. That's a Charles B. Griffith Jaws knockoff starring Sam Bottoms and also one of R. Lee uh, Ermey's first screen roles. Hmm. Uh, it's a, supposedly about a giant sturgeon-looking fish attacking what's supposed to be Hawaii, uh, but it is a Roger Corman production filmed in the Philippines. How have I never seen this one? I thought I'd seen every Jaws knockoff. Oh, uh, one cannot. I don't think there's enough time in a life in a single lifetime to do that. Not yeah. yet. Not until science uh, <laughs> catches up with us. Um, but the, the main screenwriting cre- credit on this one is uh, is pretty noteworthy because it is John Salis. Uh, born 1950. Uh, this was only the fourth screen credit uh, for Salis, who would go on to be an award-winning screenwriter and director noted f- for such films as 1996's Lone Star, which earned him an Academy Award nomination, 1992's Passion Fish, which, which also earned him a nomination, uh, 1988's Eight Men Out, 1984's The Brother from Another Planet, 97's Men with Guns, and uh, 87's Matuan, which I remember watching in film class. That's a solid and serious film about union efforts in 1920s uh, West Virginia starring uh, Chris Cooper, James Earl Jones, and David Strathen. Oh, that's interesting because I know Chris Cooper was also in Lone Star, which I haven't seen, but I was looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Very serious. Uh, yeah. These are, you know, serious and prestigious films. Uh, but before he did any of that, he also wrote the screenplays for 1978's Piranha, directed by Joe Dante, uh, 1980's Alligator, uh, that, that starred Robert Forrester, and 1981's The Howling, which was also directed by Joe Dante. So he, he definitely has horror roots. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay for 1986's The Clan of the Cave Bear, and he directed not one, not two, but three Bruce Springsteen videos, Born in the USA, I'm on Fire, and Glory Days. Wow. I don't think I knew there were music videos for any of those three songs. Yeah, well, uh, in some form or another, he directed at least something like uh, a music video for them. Uh-huh. I got to look that up. I haven't seen Alligator in many years, but if I'm remembering the right movie, I think that's the one where they cast Richard Lynch in the, uh, in the, the Quint role. Ooh, I don't remember. Um, I think I saw Alligator when I was a kid. I think this is a sewer gator movie. I could wait. I may be thinking of Alligator Two: The Mutation. Yeah, (laughs) but yes, yes, yes. uh, It is a sewer gator movie. Ah, yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, let's get into the cast on on this one, and we're gonna we're gonna take the cast uh, in the order that they're billed, which is I think we I think is quite telling because the top okay. two names also apparently absorbed a great deal of the budget for the movie. Oh, really? This next guy did. I, I feel like yeah. he kind of phoned it in if he took all that much money. Well, it's George Papard who plays our space cowboy, the only character from Earth who goes by the name Cowboy. He is called Cowboy, and he is a cowboy. Or actually, I think he sort of LARPs as a cowboy because he talks about how he spends all of his time watching old Western movies. And so mm. I think he may, maybe he is actually just a space trucker who puts on the persona of a cowboy. He's a space trucker who's gone insane in deep space yes. uh, all by himself with only West TV Westerns to keep him company and has thus taken on this, this insane persona. He, he basically dresses like a late 70s Texan trucker, and mm-hmm. he just drinks and smokes constantly and, frankly, does little else in the film. Yeah. Now, George uh, uh, Papard here was born in 1928, died in 1994, probably best remembered for playing the struggling writer Paul Varjak in the 1961 film Breakfast at Tiffany's, and also for playing Hannibal on TV's The A-Team. They made a movie out of it, uh, a, a remake, but I don't recall who was in the Hannibal role. Oh, now I'm reminded. It's 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 Neeson's. It's Liam's. It's Liam Neeson. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Oh, this guy is the I love it when a plan comes together guy. Yes. So yeah, he's our uh, he's our space cowboy, and he has he has top billing. So um, he uh, he's kind of it's it's kind of one of the many Han, uh, Han Solo esque characters in this, without being quite as cool as Han Solo. Not even close. This movie has several Han Solos. This guy is. I think they think that he works as Han Solo because he's a scoundrel. But just scoundrelness does does not a Han Solo make. You got to have that charm as well. Well, we have another shot at pulling off that charm because the the next actor of note here, who also I think was was paid um, pretty heavily compared to the the rest of the cast, is Robert Vaughn playing Gelt. Uh, everyone I think has seen Robert Vaughn in something. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he lived 1932 through 2016. And um, in this, he plays an emotionless assassin with a thousand enemies, um, which is essentially, this is basically the same role he played in The Magnificent Seven, right? Yes. And so he's in The Magnificent Seven as one of the mercenaries. And I would say that he even kind of dresses in this movie like mm. his character in Magnificent Seven. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a fun character in this film. Unlike Cowboy, who's just kind of a one-note gag yeah. uh, that hangs out a little bit too long. Uh, Gelt feels, uh, you know, authentic. I buy into the idea that here's this guy that has that is totally emotionless, but also he has this loneliness to him. Like, he's mm-hmm. he, all he's done is earned himself riches and, uh, and enemies, and now he has, like, maybe one shot at doing something good with his life. Uh, yeah, I can buy into all this. I will say Vaughn actually makes a couple of interesting acting choices, if you can believe me saying that about this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, maybe maybe we'll get to those during the plot section. But uh, yeah, he, he's doing something with it. So like I say, if you've watched films or TV, you've seen Robert Vaughn in something. Uh, he's probably most notable for his uh, roles in 1960s The Magnificent Seven, of course. 1968's Bullet, starring Steve McQueen, who was also in The Magnificent Seven. Um, 74's The Towering Inferno, and 1983's Superman 3. 
So he always had a great screen presence. You know, he was, he was uh, you know, a bit smooth, a bit menacing. And this, I think, allowed him to play a wide uh, variety of villains and authority figures. So, for instance, you'll find him uh, as the voice of the, the Proteus Four in 1977's Demon Seed. Uh, but you'll also find him in the 1970 Chuck Heston uh, Julius Caesar film. You'll also see him pop up in things like Joe D'Amato's Zombie 5 or, um, or the movie Pootie Tang. Um, on TV, he's done everything from Coronation Street to the A-Team. Uh, he played a vampire in Jim Wynarski's 1989 film Transylvania Twist. And of course, he's also America's favorite lawyer. Oh, man, this is what I've been waiting to get to. So, (laughs) if you're not familiar, later in his career, Robert Vaughn, the actor, had an extensive run as a, quote, spokesman in personal injury lawyer commercials. (laughs) I think with the implicit intention of tricking people into thinking that this classy yet tough-looking attack dog was one of the lawyers who worked at the firm being advertised. I remember years ago, we had some kind of We had something on our fridge. It was either a magnet or a cutout of a magazine ad or something, Uh, but it was for a local law firm, and it had a picture of this guy, of Robert Vaughn, (laughs) and then down at the bottom in fine print, it said, Robert Vaughn, spokesman. And, (laughs) you know, I think in this picture, he was jacket off, wearing suspenders and a tie, so a real ready-to-tussle look. I think they're going for... A, a feeling of that this guy makes claims adjusters just wet their pants. It, like they are terrified of him. Uh, and if you look it up on YouTube, you can find tons of Robert Vaughn uh, lawyer commercials. Millions of dollars. That's knowledge. That's experience. That's success. You've got one opportunity for justice. Why accept less? Put the law firm with a proven track record to work for you. <laughs> And I would say, I want, I want to posit that Robert Vaughn's success as a spokesman in lawyer commercials is almost perfectly aligned with the quality that got him cast at least two times as a mercenary who is hired to defend a bunch of farmers from an evil bandit king in, in uh, the Western and in the space opera. Because he just seems like like the tough, cutthroat SOB that in an alternate <laughs> timeline might be working for the bandit king or for the insurance company, but you just happen to have been lucky enough to get him on your side. And now he fights for you. <laughs> yeah, I, if memory serves, they used to show one of these in, in the Atlanta area, uh, yeah. some firm or another. And maybe they still do. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's possible that, that these, I mean, just because he's dead doesn't mean he can't be the spokesman for a, a, a law firm, right? Right, sure. I mean, I'm assuming, I'm assuming. Robert Vaughn had all these interesting characteristics that I didn't even know about until I started reading up on him uh, for this episode. Like at some point he was interested in politics uh, and I imagine Mm -hmm. probably the same quality that makes him appealing as a lawyer commercial spokesman probably would have made him a successful political candidate. Uh, He, I, I found even an old episode of firing line where he's like arguing with Willie, William F. Buckley. He's arguing against the Vietnam war um, so he's a, a strange and complex figure. Yeah. And I mean, I mentioned Coronation Street earlier. That, of course, is a long running British TV series. It's interesting to see that he's a guy that I guess worked predominantly in the United States, but then you'll see him pop up in not just uh, European or British films, but like British TV series for periods of time. So mm-hmm. he, he certainly worked a lot. 
Another thing I want to point out about his lawyer spokesman persona. So I said the image I remember, he's wearing suspenders, and I think I'm right about that. But if you look up these commercials today, in almost all of them, he's wearing a vest. And I think his character wears a vest in The Magnificent Seven, just oh. like Han Solo wears a vest. So I don't know. There, there, there's something going on here. There's a through line from Han Solo to this guy who's going to fight for you and against the, against the greedy insurance companies. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our, our actual uh, central character here, our, our Luke Skywalker, if you will. It's a character named Shad. And Shad is played by Richard Thomas, born 1951. Yep, this is this is John Boy from the Waltons. This is the grown-up uh, Bill Denbro from the 1990 TV adaptation of It. This is good casting because young Richard Thomas does kind of have that that naive, likable farm boy charm, like like Mark Hamill. Yeah, there's there's also in general, there's often a sweaty intensity to Richard Thomas that I tend to like in a performance. Yeah. Um, and, and you see it in this film too. He's good at that, uh, that sort of, you can see the gears moving in a performance. And I feel like in, even in this film, a film that does not demand any kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, an earnest performance from uh, its various players. I felt, mm-hmm. I felt like uh, Richard Thomas was able to bring it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, more, uh, I, I guess a lot of viewers out there might know him better from some recent television series uh, that he was a series that he was a part of. He was uh, he was on Ozark. He was on uh, The Americans, mm. and uh, the anthology roundup for Thomas is actually kind of fun for me because uh, he was in a Tales from the Crypt episode, a pretty good one as I recall, titled "Mute Witness to Murder," in which he plays a demented psychologist with slick back hair. Ew. Yeah, there. That's against the pl- type. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he was he was a fun villain in that. Like, I, if, if memory serves, he's killing somebody in uh, in his own apartment, and somebody across uh, the street in another apartment building rear windows the whole situation. But then she's so so shocked by the murder that she goes mute, and then she winds up uh, in an asylum situation. Who is her doctor? But it's the murderer. It's uh, it's uh, it's Richard Thomas, oh, uh, no. and so uh, anyway, typical tales from the crypt shenanigans in, uh, ensue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was also in an episode of the '90s Outer Limits uh, titled "The New Breed." This was about mutation-inducing nanobots, and it had some some pretty nasty horror elements in it. And in that, Richard Thomas plays a mad scientist. Oh wow! Against type again. So, I I kind of like that move though of taking somebody who seems very uh, good-hearted and innocent in casting them as a villain. Like, I think Ron Howard should have played villains more when he was, (laughs) you know, in his 40s, 50s. Yeah, yeah. All right, speaking of villains, though, uh, (laughs) our our main villain in this is, um, is this this Sador? Sador, yeah. Sador. Sador, what does that rhyme with? Mm, It's like... Vader, but mm-hmm. but with 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 uh, with something sadistic added to it. A sadistic Vader is a Sador. What or if Darth a, Vader was sadistic? Or if Vader was a <laughs> was a Sator? I don't know. But anyway, played by John Saxon, the great John Saxon, who oh lived nineteen thirty six through twenty twenty. So bust out your John Saxon punch card because uh, you, we've got more Saxon action for you in this film. Um, I'll refer you back to our episode on Cannibal Apocalypse for more of a breakdown on Saxon himself and his work. But suffice to say, he plays an evil warlord and master of mutants in this film. And, oh, he, he's got some wonderful lines, uh, lines that I, I had, I'd heard in a, a mix before, actually, uh, off the album Saifu by Wax Factor. But uh, like there's one where he's saying, I possess a stellar converter, the 
the most powerful weapon in the universe. And then another great line is, Daco is expert at inflicting pain. Now, what do you make of John Saxon's accent in this movie? He's not speaking <laughs> with his natural voice, but he's also not really affecting the accent of like any other region or country. I would... It's not a British accent, but it's like he adopts a formal accent. Do you know what mm. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's it's like it's like a formal American villain, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Another thing, Saxon clearly was not able to convince them to give him a shirtless scene in this movie. I don't think he had one. No, no, he didn't. Uh, uh, which which is is kind of a rarity for 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 the Saxon films we've been watching anyway. Um, yeah. And it, it is interesting that yeah, he doesn't have a Darth Vader helmet. Uh, he mm. also he has a little bit of makeup on his face, like some sort of a scar effect that's been added to, uh, over one of his eyes. But he's not nearly as made up as his legion of mutant underlings who all have very pronounced disfigurements and like a cleft in their face. Yeah, so I was wondering, why does this movie not do the thing that every other Star Wars knockoff does and have a Darth Vader suit? And if I, I don't know, but if I had to guess, I would guess it's because they had John Saxon in this role and they wanted to show his face on screen or because Saxon wanted to show his face on screen. You just, you don't hide your Saxon under a helmet. That's ludicrous. Yeah. Plus, uh, you know, thinking back to Cannibal Apocalypse, there are some details about that movie where Saxon did put his foot down about certain things that, you know, he didn't want to do. Uh, he didn't think were the right choice for him. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know the, the story, but I can imagine a scenario in which Saxon's like, I just, I don't want to wear that much makeup or I don't want to wear that helmet. Can you do something else that works? And, uh, and maybe they found that middle ground. And, and ultimately, yeah, if you're paying for John Saxon, put him on the screen. I know how Corman budgets work. You wouldn't put, you wouldn't have John Saxon in a role where you got to have a helmet on him. You you mm -hmm. just get, you know, some PA to do that. And then maybe <laughs> you'd cast a voice actor. All right. Well, more, more on Saxon's performance here in a bit. But uh, moving on to other characters, we have uh, Darlene Flugel playing uh, Nanelia. This is the, uh, the, the central love interest for Shad. Uh, uh, Flugel lived 1953 through 2017, and she was in some major films of the 1980s, including To Live and Die in L.A., Once Upon a Time in America, Running Scared. Uh, later in her career, she also appeared in Pet Cemetery 2, Scanner Cop, and Darkman 3. Wow, we got a Scanner Cop in here. Yeah. Uh, her first film was 1978's Eyes of Laura Mars, which I've been tempted to, to check out. I've not seen it, but it has a number of wonderful connections in it. And John Carpenter uh, has a screenplay credit on it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, move over because the next character is, uh, what is this? Saint? Saint X-Men? Saint X-Men, played by Sybil Danning. Wow. Yes. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yep. This, uh, born 1952, this, of course, is the Austrian-born B-movie queen, uh, Sybil Danning, who we previously talked about in Hercules. Uh, she played Adriana in that. And boy, this this is just an absolutely ridiculous performance <laughs> and, and costume and character. Um, this is one of the most ludicrous roles I have ever seen in <laughs> any movie. It is. It's just completely outrageous. Saturn award-winning, by the way. A Saturn award-winning performance. I didn't even know where to begin talking about this character. Yeah, because even for a Sybil Danning role, this character is a lot. Uh, yeah. And she, you know, I'll credit to Sybil, to, uh, to Sybil Danning for committing to the character because oh, yeah, yeah. they managed to squeeze her into some of the silliest costumes in the whole film. Um, 
and then she's so her character is to back up a little bit her her character is basically an amorous space amazonian warrior valkyrie uh type character you know like all yeah. those tropes just mashed together um she's often dressed in this kind of space valkyrie costume that looks like it's made out of dried silly string yeah it's kind of a uh, like it's a skeletal bone corset with like uh with like gremlin ear head headwear um it it is so weird yeah, it's 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 completely ridiculous, and then she's a she, she's a, a hotshot space pilot, and so you have you have all these scenes where she's piloting the cockpit, but they have her in this cockpit environment that makes it look like she's getting a dental exam, like they're yeah. shooting her from this really unflattering angle, uh, an unflattering angle for just any member of the human species. So it's the nothing, it's the up the nose angle. Yeah, so this like this does not I can't I can't imagine how anyone thought this. Would was a great shot and, and needed to be used in the, the film. Uh, but here she is. And when she's not piloting that spaceship, she's coming on to Shad in some of the cringiest moments in the entire film. Oh, yeah. Nothing like a, like a double entendre sex joke that's based on machinery metaphor that goes on for like 70 seconds. <laughs> it's, it's unbearable. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The next uh, human of note in this is uh, Sam Jaffe playing Dr. Hephaestus. Um, wow. I mean, we're going from weirdest to almost on par weirdness. Yeah, yeah. This one, I think, is a close second to St. X-Men um, in terms of just ludicrous screen presence. I don't even know how much we want to get into this, but basically he's an android scientist who has uh, done some silly things to his own body and oh, it just—it's just so. I—I I, don't—I don't want to say it's embarrassing, uh, but it's just so silly. It's just—it's just laugh-inducing. Well, I want to be clear. You said he's an android scientist, so he makes androids, but he is originally human. Right. He has become essentially when we meet him. Uh, he is a head, a human head on top of a cabinet full of synthetic organs. Right. And it, the cabinet opens in a way that feels kind of dirty, like he's a yeah. flasher in a trench coat. Yes. And then, and, but, the, but I want to stress too, the cabinet is really well designed as well. So it's one of these moments where on one level, yes, this looks really good. This is a great shot, and this is a great prop you created for, for Sam Jaffe here. But on the other hand, just looks completely ridiculous. Um, he, and he's, he's just giving this kind of like smiling, uh, super happy grandma, grandpa performance as well. Uh, it's, it's a weird one to process. Yeah, but, but I would say exactly like Sybil Danning, I give Sam Jaffe credit here for committing. Both of these people were given absolutely unbelievably weird stuff to do and they just go all in yeah uh sam jaffe lived 1891 through 1984 actor of stage and screen best known for the asphalt jungle the day the earth stood still bed knobs and broomsticks and ben hur i want to highlight uh, what you just said which is that this is an actor born in 1891 a product of the 19th century who in this Star Wars ripoff plays a head on a cabinet full of organs. Yep. Uh, who wants to imprison a, a young Luke Skywalker clone in order to produce grandchildren for him. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, the next character, uh, actor of note, this this is a more of a, uh, I guess, a small role, but it's worth noting because, you, so you have these nesters, uh, 
Nestor. It's kind of like, it sounds like it should be a brand of like cheap coffee that you encounter in a hotel. Uh, mm-hmm. But no, these are like four pale white aliens that all like think and speak and taste in unison. And so it's, yeah. yeah, so it's four different actors, you know, dolled up the same way. One of them is played by Earl Bowen, who was born in 1945 and, uh, is probably best known to everyone out there as uh, Silberman, Dr. Silberman in the Terminator films. He's the crooked psychiatrist who keeps Sarah Connor in, in, in the institution. Yeah. Uh, he was also in The Man with Two Brains, and he's, he's done a lot of voice work. He also appears in the Dead Right episode of Tales from the Crypt, which starred Demi Moore and Jeffrey Tambor. I wonder if this is where he met James Cameron and how he ended up in the Terminator movies. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems, it's, I, I would bet that is the case. Because speaking of the um, of, of the James Cameron uh, uh, acting ensemble, Bill Paxton allegedly did carpentry work on this film. Oh, so, okay. So I guess you know he's like, "Hey, you, you, you're in. How about you? All right, put down that put down that hammer. <laughs> you're going to be in uh, in a film of mine. Uh, can you grow a mohawk? He did have a mohawk in Terminator, right? Oh yeah, he did. Yeah, uh, but d- didn't he? Wasn't there also a story about how? Uh Harrison Ford was was originally working as a carpenter on set for Star Wars before he was cast. Am I wrong oh, yeah, about that? That sounds familiar. Like no, that? No. Oh, Seth just set us straight. I think he was in American Graffiti with Lucas before Star Wars, which uh, but but being a carpenter had something to do, I think, with uh, getting him in there. All right, uh, another credit of note here: Kathy Griffin plays an uncredited mm-hmm. alien extra in this. So yeah, this is the first screen appearance of actor and comedian Kathy Griffin. Blink and you'll miss it. And you'll miss it unless you're you're actively looking for it. But yes, she is in there. Born 1960, uh, she's an uncredited alien. I did not catch her. Yeah, she's, uh, she's part of, uh, she's on Shad's home planet. So she's oh, relatively okay. early in the film. And I don't think you see her in the background anymore after that. Okay, so she's walking around. She's hanging out with the guys who look like they're in Leonard Skinnerd. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, now it's time to talk about the music on this one because the score for this film is by James Horner. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. I believe this would be yet another James Cameron connection, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, James Horner lived 1953 through 2015. This was one of the first scores uh, that he composed. Uh, he would go on to score a number, I mean, so, so many classic scores, uh, films such as uh, James Cameron's Aliens, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Willow, Field of Dreams, Apollo 13, Titanic, A Beautiful Mind, and Avatar. And uh, uh, when I think of Horner, I have to say, I often think of the, you know that, that great tension-building bit from the Alien score. I think of various blockbusters, like some of the ones I mentioned. But, you know, I have to say, uh, the score that he did for the 1986 adaptation of The Name of the Rose, I think is really quite excellent. It's a superb mix of choral, uh, uh, electronic, and uh, orchestral themes uh, that, that, that kind of uh, come together in a perfect way for a, a film like this that is supposed mm. to be about, you know, monastery on sort of the edge of, uh, of the world. Mm. Now, uh, one, this is kind of interesting as well. Horner's last film score was a 2016 remake of The Magnificent Seven. How about that? Huh. Yeah. I never saw that. Yeah. Oh, and prior to Battle Beyond the Stars, he also worked on the scores for Humanoids from the Deep and Up from the Depths, the um, uh, killer sturgeon movie in the Philippines that I uh, referenced earlier. 
And finally, like we've been pointing out, yes, James Cameron has art direction and visual effects credits on this film. Um, now, obviously, he would go on to be quite a big deal, but um, Cameron's big directorial writing break wouldn't come till the following year uh, after this film with Piranha 2, The Spawning. <laughs> And that was followed by 1984's The Terminator. And, of course, at that point, you're just off to the races. But at this point, uh, he'd done a short film titled Xenogenesis in 78. He'd been a production designer on Galaxy of Terror, which he also did second unit director duties on. And the following year, in 81, uh, would see him serve uh, in uh, a capacity for uh, special visual effects and, and matte artwork on John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Hmm. Well, yeah, so there are a lot of stories in the making of documentary about uh, James Cameron's work behind the scenes on this movie. Uh, he, like, <laughs> there are a lot of just little details about him wanting to do really ambitious things that some of which did end up in the movie and ended up looking amazing, but I think were sort of pressing up against the budget constraints that this movie was operating on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, like some of the other production designers and visual effects people who worked on the movie said, you know, we'd be working on this and then somebody would come to us and say, Hey, uh, you know, Jim is, uh, he, he's got this idea and it's going to cost a lot more than we expected. So can you do what you're doing now much cheaper and so forth? Uh, but there was also a story one person on there told about an argument that James Cameron got into with the director. I think it was the director of photography on Battle Beyond the Stars, who was a uh, unfortunate, I forget his name at the moment, uh, but he was a French guy. And they were arguing about the science of twinkling stars because the, uh, the DP was saying, okay, from the spaceship's cockpit, we should have the stars twinkling. And uh, Cameron was like, no, because stars only twinkle because of the atmosphere of a planet. And that is true. Like the mm -hmm. reason a star twinkles is uh, has to do with how the, uh, the light from a point like source is affected by, you know, drafts and the gases of the atmosphere before it reaches your eyes. It takes a kind of wiggly zigzag pattern and, and that causes the the twinkling. And according to this interview, this ended with the, the, the DP getting up in Cameron's face and pulling his beard and saying <laughs> like, uh, Monsieur Cameron, you are a brat. <laughs> so James Cameron, easy to work with right from the, the get go, basically. <laughs> But, I but he was right. He was right about the stars. Yeah, yeah. Each one is a setting sun. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, well, let's get into the, let's get properly into the plot of this film and flesh out some of these just weird choices and weird moments that, uh, that make up the runtime. Okay, well, this is one of those where uh, we're not going to do every scene in the movie, but I, I want to focus on some some highlights and some themes. Uh, but we, we will start with the beginning because in a Star Wars knockoff movie, what's your opening going to be? You know exactly what it's mm-hmm. going to be. In fact, I think almost all of these begin with a shot of a star field and then what what's it going to be? What's it going to yep. be? Spaceship shot. moving in. Yep, yep, spaceship pans, comes over the top of the camera. Um, and in this case, the first spaceship we see, I would say, is shaped 
pretty much like the blockade runner we see at the beginning of Star Wars. You know, it's the horizontal cylinder at the bow Mm -hmm. and then an array of parallel rocket engines in the stern. Right off the bat, though, this ship looks really good, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, agree. Uh, and in here, though, the, the interesting thing is that the allegiance of this ship is flipped because in Star Wars, that ship is uh, the ship with this shape is Princess Leia's Corvette. It's being chased by the Imperial Star Destroyer. And in this movie, there's no chase going on. The ship just is the Star Destroyer. And it's mm-hmm. also sort of the Death Star. It is the flagship of the wicked and treacherous Malmori who have arrived in your star system to do evil. Yeah, essentially space warlords, an army of of what failed mutants, kind of like messed up clones or something. Yeah, uh, and they are led by John Saxon. Right, and so they approach uh, they approach a planet, and we hear technicians on this evil capital ship discussing what they see on the view screen. They say this is Akir, a planet of stone with a single green spot. Life forms compatible with ours. Oxygen forms with radial symmetry. I think they say radial symmetry. They have a solar technology. No known defense capacity. And then I think somebody, John Saxon, I think, says, uh, interesting. Let's check that. (laughs) And so, oh, no. First thing, the Star Destroyer just rolls up on this kind of twittering weather satellite it is crewed by a couple of extremely polite boys from akir and they're staring down this doom ship and the minor cords are swelling and they're like hello there welcome to our atmosphere (laughs) uh this is the planet akir could you identify yourself please and then the ship just vaporizes But I, I like how the the sort of sweet Midwestern corniness of the guys from Akir in the satellite is immediately contrasted by weird imagery when we see what the planet surface looks like. Uh, so we only get these brief glimpses, but uh, what we see is like that the, the infrastructure of the civilization on this planet surface seems to be built out of flesh trees that are also giant screaming skulls. So it's like the Ewok village, but imagine the forest instead of wood is warped flesh and the bones of whatever species Pac-Man is. Yeah, it's 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 really quite cool looking. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, of Salvador Dali. It reminds me yeah. a bit of Fantastic Planet. Uh, it, it, it overall it has a wonderful like weird 70s sci-fi vibe to it yeah and i already mentioned this but a lot of the locals have a distinct classic rock vibe that yes. dudes <laughs> look like the allman brothers mm-hmm. this is a film you, you know you look back at star wars star wars is a product of the 1970s and yeah if you look hard enough you can you can see the 70s in it but but not nearly as strongly as the 70s often bleeds through into a picture like this. And yeah, yeah. the 70s is, is strongly manifested, even though this is the early 80s, of course, but you know, we're still, still very yeah. much a product of the, the late 1970s. The, 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 the decade is strongly present in this film. Oh, it was the 70s until 1984. <laughs> that is canon. Anyway, so the evil capital ship, it slides over the city, blots out the sun, and they are treated to a message. You see John Saxon's face projected in the sky, and he says, I am Sador of the Malmori. I've come here with my forces to conquer you. If you resist, I will crush you. I possess a stellar converter, the most powerful weapon in the universe. In the universe? How would he Mm -hmm. know that? (laughs) Anyway. 
You cannot resist me. I want your planet to be my colony. Your harvest comes in seven risings of your red giant. I will return then. You will accept me as your master. If you do not submit, your planet and all life on it will be burned to ash. And I think this kind of opening would probably work better if you were to see the least bit of the flavor of everyday life before the evil space Lord shows up. Like this seems kind of clumsy plotting to me because here we get absolutely nothing. We, we meet the good guys at the exact moment that they're being threatened with death by the big bad. Yeah. The other interesting thing is that watching this film, you would think, okay, and then they surrender, right? I mean, they, they yeah. have no defense capabilities. The, the overlord just showed up full force in their orbit. He has orbital superiority over the planet. Like uh-huh. th- that's it. The game's over. There's, there's, what are you, you going to even try to do? Yeah. And then like, just to be mean, he starts like blasting them with lasers also. Yeah. That are, that are manned by what he calls snipers, who are these, the zombies that work for him. I guess they're, they're mutants. Yeah, uh, they're a little vague on it, but I kind of got the 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 sense that yeah, they're failed mutants, but they're also kind of clones. I don't know if they're supposed to be clones of John Saxon's character or not. There mm-hmm. is that similarity between like the red scar on the face. Yeah. Um, it, overall, yeah, I would say that um, that uh, that Sador's character is is weird and keeps you questioning what exactly his whole deal is, which uh, which I kind of liked. I kind of liked that. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of wondering if all of the mutants on the ship are like clones of himself that he created so he could harvest their organs because that, we see about mm-hmm. him later that he is constantly getting parts of his body replaced. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a very strong uh, uh strong theory. Yeah, and ultimately he doesn't care where he gets those parts. He's like that's a nice arm you got there. Uh mm-hmm. doctor, strap it on. Right. Uh, so down on a we're, we're about to actually hear the locals talk to each other. Oh, and just, I wanted to flag one thing quickly. I suspect that this planet is called Akir and the people on it are called Akira because this oh. movie is an adaptation of seven samurai via magnificent seven. Nice. Anyway, so we we hear the Akira discussing their situation, and the very first thing we get is this whiny-sounding guy making a passionate case that they should not defend themselves in any way. <laughs> he says, so we live by the Varda. The Varda is not to fight. And this is the first reference in the movie to the Varda, which will be brought up many, many more times. I think it's supposed to be the stand-in for the Force, but... Mm-hmm. I don't know if it quite works. It it works differently than the force. So the Varda seems to be some kind of formalized creed. Like it, it, you can quote the Varda. It is a set of dogmas, rules, and proverbs. And our young hero frequently does quote from the Varda as if it were, were like a book that is supposed to guide your life. Whereas the force is not like that. Like you can't quote the force. I would say the force is more like the Tao or like the Holy Ghost. It is mm-hmm. uh, a substance and a being, a type of divine power or will permeating all things. Yeah, Varda. I guess they're kind of alluding to Veda here. So yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm not sure if this incongruity between the force and the Varda was like a deliberately a deliberate choice to do something different. Uh, or if it, I, I don't know, but I don't know if it was a deliberate choice, I guess that's kind of interesting, but I'm not sure exactly what that cashes out to. But at any rate, a strong theological slash legal argument for simply surrendering to the Mount Mori empire. 
Right. He says the Varda is not to fight. And he says the Akira haven't fought for centuries. And then immediately we hear somebody off screen bellowing, <laughs> I have fought. <laughs> and uh, this bearded guy wanders in. This is Zed the Corsair, an old hmm. man who is nearly blind, who used to fly a spaceship and has experience with war. And he cantankerously explains that the way to defeat violence is with violence. Uh, <laughs> He's he like, I that, fought once, it worked, let's do that. <laughs> yes. He says that in order to fight creatures of violence, you must use creatures of violence. And uh, everybody's just kind of like, oh, okay. So it's immediately decided that they need to hire mercenaries. And here's our seven samurai recruitment mm. situation. So somebody's got to go recruit them. But who can do it? Well, immediately, a young character played by Richard Thomas volunteers and emotional music plays as if we know something about this character, but we don't because this is the first time he's talked. Right. <laughs> and I think this is a good place to point out. It probably hasn't been clear in our explanation so far, but to point out how fast everything is happening in this sequence, like you, you do not really have time for any of these developments to cause emotions or, or mean anything. It's just, I'm Sador. I will kill you. We <laughs> cannot fight. We must hire mercenaries who can do it. This guy. <laughs> and it's, you know, of course I, I enjoyed this movie very much uh, despite all this, but I think it's also a good opportunity to point out things that make good storytelling really work. Like, one thing Star Wars actually does quite well by contrast, before Luke Skywalker is called to adventure, you get to see like the dreariness and the boredom of his life mm -hmm. on the farm, and you see him staring at the suns, he's yearning for more, he's feeling that uh, ineffable, almost irrational angst of frustrated youth, which makes it emotional and meaningful when his life is actually upended, and, and he... He, he has to go out and answer the pleas of the princess and, and, you know, respond to the death of his guardians. Here, I think the, the first time the young hero speaks is when he's volunteering to go on a mission. So you don't really get any of that. In this movie, the call to adventure is answered immediately, yes. uh, which is kind of an interesting sharp contrast to Message from Space in which the call to adventure seemed to take most of the film to roll out and then yeah. <laughs> was mulled over and finally accepted with like in the last 10 minutes of the film. Yeah, it's sending out those magic nuts that fly mm -hmm. over the galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But when Richard Thomas volunteers, the, the whiny guy from the beginning, he says, you, you're a boy. <laughs> and he says, uh, and Richard Thomas says, but the Varda teaches us that each form has its function. So I guess the point is, e even when you're a boy, you can still go on an adventure. Uh, and so it basically has to be Shad who does this. Uh, that's the character's name, because he's the only one who can fly Zed's ship, Nell. Now, Nell will be... I would say one of the other main characters of the movie. Nell is a talking spaceship that I would say looks like a cross between a flayed horse and a bosomy hammerhead shark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, um, it's, it's an impressive ship design. Reminds me of, um, of a particular World War II like super glider that the Germans used. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, I don't know if there was a model kit of that at the time, but I wonder if that was potentially, uh, possibly adapted into this model for this spaceship. But uh, yeah, this ship has character. Um, it's uh, it's pretty cool looking. I like the, the coloration of it. It has this kind of, a, mm -hmm. what is it, like a deep rusty kind of yeah. uh, brown slash crimson-y color. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's right. And it clearly has, it has biomechanical design. Like it doesn't mm -hmm. look like sharp angles and metal like a lot of the other spaceships do. This looks like a, 
like a naked body with a hammerhead shark head. Yeah. Oh, but then also, it, you, so you say the, sh- the ship has character, and it has character quite literally because it's not oh, just yes. design. It talks, and, and it's not just saying, like, you know, engage thrusters. It has a toot. It's like a rootin' tootin', <laughs> back-talking robot grandma. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit sassy. And it encourages young Shad to kill. <laughs> this was a strange <laughs> theme that's repeated throughout the movie. But, uh, you know, Shad, like, he first leaves the planet on his mission, which is it, first he's going to get weapons from a guy named Dr. Hephaestus. Mm-hmm. And he is attacked by some guards left behind. There's a big space battle. Uh, he's trying to escape and he refuses to shoot back at the guards and Nell is urging him. She's like, do it, shoot them. <laughs> and later Nell will blast spaceships without Shad's consent. But then after that, Shad gets a real like taste for war and starts to love blasting it, That That's kind of strange. Yeah. Especially since again, the Varda is not to violence yeah. and yet here they are violencing all over the place. All right, so uh, I'm not going to do super detail on this, but the the sequence with Dr. Hephaestus <laughs> is so weird. So Chad goes to a space station, seems to be populated entirely by androids, but then he meets one human, Nanelia, the daughter of Dr. Hephaestus, and she's like a brilliant scientist who repairs androids, and she can do all the technical wizardry, but she's also very naive about the world because she has never left this space station. And uh, so they, they, they meet, and and then he is taken to Dr. Hephaestus himself, who was supposed to supply them with, with arms to defend their planet. But oops, Dr. Hephaestus is no longer a human body. He's now just a head on this cabinet full of organs. Uh, and his plan is like, well, I, I'm not interested in defending your planet. Instead, Chad, I'm going to imprison you on this space station and make you father children with Nanelia. Uh, Shad is reasonably creeped out by this. But then together, he and Nanelia, uh, they, they decide to flee the station. So they break out together. And uh, in this scene, they seem to bond by sharing scientific and anthropological facts about other planets in the galaxy. They like <laughs> bond over learning. I have to say, this whole sequence, too, reminded me a lot of Logan's Run. It had a real Logan's Run kind of feel to it. Yeah. Uh, but now, of course, this is sort of our first recruit. Nanelia is now on board for the cause mm-hmm. of protecting Akir, and they're going to split up and both go try to recruit mercenaries. Right, right. So on the quest to recruit mercenaries, he has so far recruited uh, this, this one woman who has yeah. no combat experience that we know of. Oh, but she has like, uh, that's true, but she has like scientific, technical, she can like do stuff with androids, though I don't recall if she ever does anymore in the movie. But they're prepared just in case that comes up. Yeah. Of course, they are going to fall in love because of course. Um, And in the sequence, there are also, there are several really funny moments. One of them that made me laugh out loud was the scenes of them riding around on these carts in the Mm -hmm. space station, because like the cart will seat two. It's like Shad and Anelia sitting next to each other on a love seat on a cart. And the carts are extremely slow and they're almost as wide as the hallway they're in. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Now, I think a lot of the fun in Seven Samurai type movies is the the rounding up of the gang, right? You know, you got to pick right. all the mercenaries who are going to come back and help protect the village. Uh, so I guess we should talk a bit about each of the recruits. Now, we've already mentioned Cowboy, played by George Pappard. Uh, how exactly is he recruited? Well, Shad, like, runs up on his spaceship as he's being attacked by pirates. And the question is, should Shad intervene and blast the pirates? He again says, the Varda prohibits taking life. And then Nell says, ah, but the Varda says we can take life to save life. And Mm. then uh, he hesitates, but Nell blasts on his behalf. So they blow up the pirates and, and it turns out they've saved this guy named Cowboy. Uh, So, as we said earlier, this is a space trucker who loves watching old Western movies. Uh, he has much experience fighting. And then Shad asks him, hey, well, then will you fight for us? Well, Cowboy says there's a problem with that. He says you're fighting Sador and Sador never loses and never quits. So fighting on your side, that's that's a losing game. I'm not going to do it. But then suddenly Nell shares a video feed of a totally different planet somewhere else where I guess they have refused Sador's... Uh, ultimatum and then sador just blows up the planet he vaporizes it with his stellar converter and as luck would have it that planet that just got blowed up that was where cowboy's buyer was stationed so he's he can't take his his cargo anymore and what he was transporting just happens to be blasters so shad is like yes we need those take them to my planet and so cowboy agrees so he wasn't interested in doing good until uh, it messed up with his arms deal. <laughs> it yes. messed up his arms deal. So he's like, now it's personal. Yeah. <laughs> this can't no. stand. No, it's, he's taking it too personal. Um, and Cowboy, there's so much weirdness about Cowboy. Mm-hmm. One thing that I was like, what? I, I guess it, uh, I don't know. So he, there's one part where I think he has a Confederate flag on the side yep. of his spaceship. There is definitely a Confederate flag plastered to the side of his spaceship. I'm not sure what the significance of that thousands of years into the future is supposed to be, but uh, weird choice to say the least. Uh, Cowboy's uh, belt buckle, though, in a in a more charming touch, includes a scotch and soda dispenser. So he literally like puts a glass under his belt buckle, and you hear like a a water sound, and it's like whiskey or soda coming out of it. And I think he can also plink down cubes of ice from his yep. belt buckle. Yeah, he can do Yeah, the ice, the soda, and the, the whiskey. All three come out of the belt buckle. Unle- and so I, I guess we're, to lead, we're led to believe this is uh, just a fancy bit of technology that allows him to drink constantly. But I also wonder, what if, uh, what if Cowboy's no longer human? And, uh, mm. and this is him just simply recycling the ice cubes, uh, soda, and, uh, and, and whiskey that he actually can't, can't really process. It just comes back out again into the cup. Oh, he's like a fountain, you know, it yeah. goes down and then it like shoots back out. Yeah. No, no, but but in reality, no, he's just supposed to be an earth dude, an earth dude yeah. who drinks and smokes. And again, little else. Uh, uh, thinking back on it, it's hard for me to remember what he truly contributed to the the, the film, except for the occasional bursts of uh, comic relief and uh, hooking everyone up with blasters. Well, in the final battle, he shows the, he, he plans the uh, ground defense. So he oh, helps yes, them right. like defend the trenches they dig on the planet's surface. So there's like spaceship battles and battles on the ground with Sador's troops. And he, he helps them defend on the ground. 
Oh, and then there's one part where uh, Shad is talking to Cowboy, and Cowboy is smoking a cigarette. And Shad says, is that real smoke you're putting in your lungs? And Cowboy's <laughs> like, uh, yep, uh, and it's not good for you. And then Shad says, I don't think you should do it. <laughs> so it's <just> like a <laughs> little anti-smoking message. Nice. Okay, next recruit. How about a, how about a lizard guy? You, do we want a oh, boss yes, the in this guy. movie? <laughs> Uh, this is Cayman of the Lambda Zone, uh, as, as well as a few other allies portrayed by Morgan Woodward. So uh, this is a fighter recruited by Nanelia. This Again, this recruitment happens sort of by accident. So Nanelia is captured by this Bosque-like lizard man named Cayman, who seems to be planning to sell her like as, as, uh, as meat to an alien butcher shop, I think. Um, but then she's like, uh, you're heartless, just like Sador. And then uh, uh, this was a laugh out loud moment. Immediate music sting. He goes, Sador, Sador of the Malmori. And when he finds out they're fighting Sador, his tune changes immediately. And he's like, I will fight with you because I hate Sador. Now, fun fact about Morgan Woodward, uh, though, I, I didn't include him in the original lineup here, but he lived 1925 through 2019. Uh, he was on Dallas, but the most notable thing is he's the man with no eyes from 1967's Cool Hand Luke. That, oh. uh, uh, the, the, uh, the guard with the silver shades that, you know, for most of the film, you, you can't see his eyes because of those. And he's kind yeah. of this, uh, you know, this, this, th- this very threatening presence in the film uh, that is rather iconic. You see this reference to later on in uh, the Coen Brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It has a similar character whose eyes you never see. Mm, yeah. But yes, in this lizard man. Um. <laughs> well, oh, but the lizard man also comes with buddies. He has he has a blonde muscle man who, uh, like, a lot of times his butt's hanging out. He's wearing mm-hmm. like like sort of chaps and leather suspenders, and he has a face tattoo. And then there are two creatures with giant bald heads wearing silver suits. They have no ears, and they speak mm. by emitting heat rays that burn people. <laughs> yes, those are his public relations guys. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, okay, so uh, ne- next uh, recruit, the Nesters. Nestor mm-hmm. 1 through Nestor 5, I think. This is Earl Bowen and others. Uh, this is, once again, just like the last one, it's recruitment via capture. So Shad uh, is captured in space by a gang of five psychic clones who are dressed in white robes and look like a cross between the brain guy and old man Gary Oldman Dracula with the bun hair. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Uh, so Shad, uh, when they capture him, they bring him onto their ship. Shad points a blaster at them, but then they psychically force him to point it at himself. And he's like, my mistake. And then they, they say, oh, it's okay. We know you're not of a violent form. We've scanned everything you're doing. We scan everything. We scan all. Uh, and we've been brain scanning you from the astral plane and know all about your quest for mercenaries. And, well, we want to join. Uh, and, of course, Shad is like, well, we don't have any money. We can't pay you. And they say, no need. We're self-sufficient. We are Nestor. So they explain that they are a group of clones of a species that uh, are all that, that all have one unitary shared consciousness. But there's a problem with having a unitary shared consciousness, which is that life can become very dull. And it turns out they have to seek adventure in order to avoid being literally bored to death. We also find out that they have no tolerance for pain. Like, basically, yes. you said the word pain, they've already had too much. Oh, um, and <laughs> you know what? I thought this was actually... So this movie is fun. Not much about it is thought provoking, mm-hmm. but weirdly, I thought these characters kind of were okay. So the idea of 
uh, sort of individual drones of a species that have a const, uh, a, a, a synchronous shared consciousness throughout the galaxy, they cannot become bored. They have to be constantly stimulated and they cannot bear pain. Uh, I guess because that would like share both of those states with all of them throughout the galaxy. So they have to be constantly st- like stimulated with interesting stuff and, and never in pain. And I was like, wow, that, okay. You could like write a really interesting story about that. I felt like they were the most interesting characters uh, that we encounter in the film. And they, they get two things that are great. They get, I think one of the best comedic scenes yes. in the film when they try to eat a hot dog. I mean, well, they yes. don't just try. They succeed, and they yeah. have feedback on hot dogs. And then they also have a really fun, and I thought creative, assassination attempt on Sador. Tell the hot dog scene story. Cowboys okay. eating a hot dog. Cowboys eating a hot dog. And um, I can't remember if he offers the hot dog, or they're like, what's that? Can we try that? At uh-huh. any rate, hot dog gets handed off to the Nestors, and we get a fun just visual gag where one of them is, of course, holding up the hot dog and taking a bite out of it, but all four of the heads are chewing and experiencing the hot dog. They then give a, a readout on all the ingredients. And uh, if I remember correctly, none of the ingredients are meat, right? No, it's all just like soy proteins and then names of chemicals. And mm-hmm. then Cowboy is like, on Earth, that's what we call meat. <laughs> <laughs> so I enjoyed that. I thought, like, okay, that, I think this scene landed like it was supposed to. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, then they also have this this wonderful kind of complicated and and uh, surprising assassination attempt on Sador, where one of them is captured. They allow one of them their their clones to be captured by Sador. What's Sador going to do? Well, he's of course going to torture said clone. Uh, mm-hmm. This is where we get that line about um, uh, about the uh, his his doctor is expert at inflicting pain mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, and so they they torture him to death rather quickly. But then Sador is like, that's a pretty good arm. Let's go ahead and put that on my body. They yeah. do it. His doctor does that. And he's like trying it out. You know, it's like, oh, it's got good reach, good muscle. He's only got these, it's got a weird number of fingers. We'll have to fix that later. But, you know, they're, they're not they're too concerned. But then what do the nesters start doing? They start controlling the arm and trying to uh, like, like cut Sador's throat with his own hand. Yeah. Uh, Great they're scene. narrowly able to stop them and cut the arm off with a crystal chainsaw. Ooh. It was a great sequence. I loved it. Yeah, really good. Okay, I got to mention a couple more recruitments before we wrap up. So one is Gelt, Robert Vaughn. We're back mm-hmm. to Robert Vaughn. And I got to say, the planet where they pick up Gelt looks awesome. Mountain spires made out of rocks that look kind of like veins, dark skies, and lightning. This is like LV-426 from Alien. It's beautiful. It's uh, I feel like I, I detect some Cameron influence here, though mm-hmm. I, guess I can't be sure. Um, but to describe the setup to this scene, we're being set up as if the next stop for Shad is going to contain the Mos Eisley Cantina scene because he's headed to a, a wretched hive of scum and villainy full of the best mercenaries in the galaxy. So you, you think that's what you're getting, you know, a bar full of criminals and he's going to have to, you know, recruit one of them. But in a twist, when he gets there, there's nobody there. It's like this abandoned underground bunker that looks like it used to be kind of a pleasure palace. Yeah, that's right. And there's there's no one else. Here we encounter Gelt, and Gelt is just, he's the only living human, uh, only living being left. He's there with all his treasures, all his uh, ill-gotten gains, uh, but he's like clearly, he has nothing to do. He's just, he's, he's like a prisoner in his own uh, uh, golden cell here. 
Right. He explains in a twist that all the planets of the galaxy bound together and created a defense alliance, which they used to wipe out all of the mercenaries and criminals on this planet, and only Gelt is left. He says, there's nothing left but me in the lower forms. And then he says there's a bounty on his head on every planet in the galaxy. So he's, he's in this catch 22. He has wealth and he has like, he's, he's got all this treasure for himself, but nowhere he can spend it and nowhere he can go, nowhere he can rest. Yeah. And there's this wonderful shot. Uh, There are a lot of screenshots of this on the internet, but he's seated at this throne and yeah, you see all of his treasure chest around him and it's gloriously lit. He's got this kind of stylish outfit on. He's got his laser blaster out. Um, and, oh, and the, the throne that he's seated upon, it has these two cherubs uh, built into it, and they're mm. holding a crown, and it's as if they are, they are holding the crown over his head or lowering it onto his head. It's, it's just a wonderful shot. It's great. And so, of course, he ends up getting recruited because, mainly because on a keir, he can rest. It's a place where there's not a bounty on his head, so he can go mm. there. Uh, so, so that's what he does. But I wanted to say about Robert Vaughn's performance in this movie— it's actually kind of interesting the way he plays the character and what he does with his body. For example, uh, Gelt never moves his head, really. He only moves mm. his eyes. There are scenes of him talking and scenes of him like in battle piloting his spaceship, and he almost never moves his head at all. It's completely still. He just You see his eyes going back and forth, and that creates a kind of uh, reptilian quality mm-hmm. that, that really works. Yeah, even though he is, he's not the reptile man yeah. in the uh, the mercenary gang here. But, but yeah, that's that's a good point about uh, the particulars of his performance. One one wonders was that a like a choice that he made, or did he have just did he have Frankenstein neck during yeah, the neck shoot? Neck pain, and, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and just you know ended up using it. Uh, at, at any rate, uh, yeah, I really I really like his performance, and I I have to say I was not expecting to like his performance. I was expecting it to be a lot more phoned in than this, but it was it was fun. Okay, one last mercenary. It is Saint X-Men, played by Sybil oh. Danning. Oh, uh, so we meet her because she starts, she, basically she's harassing Shad's <laughs> ship in space. She's like zipping around, taunting him, shooting blanks at him, and he can't hit her because she's moving too fast. Uh, and then she finally explains, like, it has been great fun jousting with you. I want to join your mission. Uh, I'm part of a warrior culture. We must fight. And Shad is just infinitely annoyed with her at all times. <laughs> yeah, she's just constantly you know, coming on to him. And he's, he's basically like, this is inappropriate. You yeah. should not be doing this. <laughs> I am not interested. I already have a space girlfriend. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I find you incredibly irritating. <laughs> but she's just like, but I want to fight. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, the rest of the structure is somewhat predictable. You know, the mercenaries gather together, they gather for battle against Sador, and they all contribute in various ways to the effort. But uh, all of the, I think, do all of the mercenaries get slain in battle, except maybe Cowboy? Does Cowboy survive? Mm, I thought he bought it too, but oh, maybe this, he does. Okay. This is kind of, this is the model, right? Like they all yeah. have to, 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 to perish. Well, not all of them, most of them. Mm hmm. Uh, but eventually, the young heroes, Shad and Anelia, they have to save the day. They're yes. flying around in Nell, the spaceship, and, and they got to save the day in the end. And it's kind of like, you know, you get something kind of similar to the trench run scene in Star Wars. The stellar converter is uh, is destroyed. The ship is yeah. destroyed. Uh, yeah, we, we don't have to endure some sort of a lightsaber knockoff battle, which was nice. 
Yeah, do, does anybody fight hand-to-hand with Sador? I don't recall that. I don't think it happens. No, he's just like a straight... I guess he's more in the mold of uh, Peter Cushing in that regard. Yeah, they just blow up the ship and mm-hmm. he's there. Yeah, it's more more like the moth. Well, there's a ton more that happens in the movie that we, we did not have time to get into. But Rob, I've greatly enjoyed talking about Battle Beyond the Stars with you. Yeah, this this is a fun one. Uh, this is just just a fun flick. I, I, I again, I don't know if it's more fun than, than Empire Strikes Back, but <laughs> but yeah. fair enough. It's a really fun film, and I can I if someone likes this more than Empire, then more power to them. Uh, we 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 need films in our lives that are that are this enjoyable, better than um, more fun uh, more fun than Seven Samurai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say that. I would say that. No, Seven Samurai, not, of course not. No, no, so I would. I think so. Seven Samurai, better film. Uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, more fun. Okay, for certainly me, a, for me, anyway. certainly, yeah, l- lower investment. It's not as long and it's not as serious. Okay, like I've, I've reached the point in my life where I have to realize: Am I going to watch Seven Samurai again? Probably not. Am I going to oh. watch Battle Beyond the Stars again? Yeah, it's probably going to happen. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If you make time for Seven Samurai, it's a very rewarding experience. It's a, it's a great film. I mean, I love Akira Kurosawa. So I, I can envision myself going through a Kurosawa uh, phase where I, like, I suddenly have to get back into all these films. But yeah, uh, yeah it's some great stuff. Throne of Blood. Ooh, Throne of Blood is good. Ooh. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out here. But uh, as always, write into us. Let us know what you think about Battle Beyond the Stars, uh, various other Star Wars knockoffs as well. Uh, we would love to hear from everyone out there. In the meantime, we'll remind you that, yes, Weird House Cinema publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, but on Fridays, we put most of that aside and we just talk about a weird film. I blog about these episodes at samutamusic.com. You can go there for a a blog post about this movie. I also did a blog post about that uh, Name of the Rose score from uh, from Horner. Uh, Check that out if you would like. Also, we have a letterboxed account. Uh, I think that's that's pretty much our only active social media account these days where once a week I go in there and add uh, the film that we've covered to Weird House Cinema or the film we were about to uh, cover uh, onto our list there. So if you want just an easy one uh, you know glimpse look at what we've covered and are covering uh, that's a good place to go huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. 
but you better hurry because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.